If you have a Bible, we're in Acts um, chapter 8 today. We're going to deal with the first 25 verses, Acts chapter 8. Don't worry, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screen for you this morning. The book of Acts opens in a, a fairly uh, powerful way. The very final earthly words of Jesus land on the ears of the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And in his words are contained a promise, a calling, and a destination. I don't know what they heard, but this is what he said. He said to them the promise, you'll receive the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you. You'll receive power. He says the calling that you'll be my witnesses, and he tells them where. He tells them that they'll be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and all around the world. Now, I don't have any idea what they heard. I'm trying to put myself in that moment, Jesus and the disciples. and The risen Lord, right, the king of glory, everything has now come to conclusion in their minds about who this man is. And maybe they were there just overwhelmed with the presence of God. There he is. Maybe they heard him say, and you'll be my witnesses in the world. I don't know what they kind of grabbed onto, but I'll bet they never saw how God was going to send them into the world. I'll bet you that missed them completely because Jesus didn't tell them that his message would spread through suffering. He just said, you'll go. And who signs up for suffering? Total surprise for them. Someone said it this way. It's kind of a good word picture. That following the church through the book of Acts is like following a wounded deer through the forest, right? You can trace it by the drops of blood. Everywhere from this point on in Acts, you see the church moving and going and moving and going, and it's moving and going based on suffering from the world that it's in. So much so that here we are in Gilbert, Arizona, thousands of years later, and it has moved here through this whole push that God's doing through a mechanism none of us would choose, suffering. There's no way that they saw this. Last week, we uh, looked at the life and the death of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr a man who was full of the spirit, a godly man who died and thus begins the church going into all the world, this destination piece. Look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1, and then we'll skip down to verse 4. It's kind of the second half of verse 1. This is how Luke describes it. And there arose on that day, this is after Stephen's execution, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The word is Jesus. That's what they did. It's interesting, isn't it? Just to look at the way in which God decided to extend this message of good news to the world, that the possibility that it might never have reached outside of Jerusalem if God didn't bring the precision of suffering to the church. Like it would just stayed there. Because to be honest, every description that you've seen so far of the early church is a great place. We'd all want to be there and stay there. Devoted to each other, loving each other, meeting each other's needs, devoted in prayer. I mean, that was the church to be at. So how would you ever get these people away from Jerusalem unless this thing called suffering didn't show up? And it did. So it's very interesting to me that God knows what he's doing. Amen, church? And he's perfect every time. One of the things I love about reading narratives is uh, it involves real people, real stories, real timelines, and real comparisons. Like you can look at these names and see real events. In fact, you can watch people in their response to God, their relationship to God, whether it be good or whether it be bad, it all shows up here in these stories. 
And in our particular text today, verse 20, uh, 25 verses of chapter 8, we see three different people show up in our story. And they represent kind of the breadth of, of relationships that people have with God. Now, I used this uh, kind of phrase a couple of weeks ago that there are three types of believers in every church. Believer, non-believer, make-believer. Well, that's basically in this story. We have three people. We have Saul, Philip, and Simon, all representing a different attitude towards the Lord. Let's kind of pick it apart through these relationships. The first one we're going to look at is Saul. Now, we're going to have a lot more to say about this man in weeks to come because Saul gets a name change and a heart change in a chapter. He becomes Paul, the apostle of which we see 60% of the New Testament he wrote, okay? Something happens to, to Paul, to Saul, that we get to unpack at Easter, which is going to be great. But for now, this is all the text tells us about this man. For now, Saul is the hater, okay? Look at chapter 7. We've got to back, uh, rewind a little bit to verse 58 through 60 just to get a look at this person, Saul. And they cast him out. Now, this is Stephen they're talking about. They cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. They threw big rocks at him until he was dead. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. First time he's mentioned, here he is. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Verse 1, chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. Look at verse three. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering the house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Scroll over to chapter nine. Again, just we're jumping forward a little bit just so you can know this man. Verse one of chapter nine. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that he, if he found any belonging to the way or Christians... Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Guess what he was going to do with them there? See, Stephen. That is Saul. First man in the passage. A very amazing story um, that we'll deal with more in, in detail later. But here's what the text tells us. He was present at the stoning and the death of Stephen. He gave approval to the death and stoning of Stephen. And uh, it says in the text clearly that after this particular execution... It drove the church out of Jerusalem, except for, very interesting phrase, except for the disciples. Now, we don't really know, um, to be honest, why the disciples were not scattered. It could be that the persecution broke out against the Grecian believers, and that's what scattered out of the church in Jerusalem. It could have been one of those things, or God could have provided an extra measure of courage and strength to withstand the persecution the disciples were experiencing in Jerusalem. We, we don't really know why, but... Regardless, the main man in this particular narrative is this man, Saul, and the text tells us in verse 3 that it's a man who ravaged violence against the church. Now, I'm not going to exaggerate this word. I'm simply going to tell you what this word means. You might have a text that says destroy, and that's what it means. It simply means that it was sadistic cruelty that he was bringing to Christians. It was described of a wild boar that would find a body or its prey and tear it apart by violence. Of all the words Luke would use to describe the activities of the hater in the early church, he said that's what he was about, ripping them apart with sadistic cruelty. Now, stop for a second. Scroll in your memory the description of the early church. Here's what I remember. These people loved Jesus and they loved each other. They were sharing what they had with everyone, meeting needs daily, right? They were praying 
and miracles were happening and people were getting blessed. Who would mess with that? All good so far. Sounds good, right? Who would mess with that? Well, if anything in scripture talks about the condition of natural man's heart, this one does. Because in this particular description, it's proof of our war with God. And when I say our war, I'm saying you and me and every man, woman, and child that's ever lived on this planet, we are born at enmity with God. People don't like to tell you that part of the story. They suggest that you are born sort of okay, make a few adjustments, and on you go with your life. But the good news starts with this declaration about our condition. We're all fighting against the will and the work of God. We're born that way. We want to be our own Lord. We want to be our own answers. Saul was on a vicious campaign to destroy Christians. And here's what's weird. He thought he was doing good. And he was motivated by religious zeal. That's what he was into. Saul hated because he hated what God was doing. He didn't perceive it that way, which, which, by the way, in his efforts to kill the church, it would be so easy to stop in a story like this and say, okay, he just needs to go. Like, I wish him dead. Like, we see things, religious zeal expresses itself in our world, don't we? We see people who, for the wrong reason, thinking they're doing good, do harm to others, and we kind of wish them extinction. Just just go away. You're in, in the way. And so it would be easy to look at a guy like Saul, if we didn't know the rest of the story, and say, he just needs to go. Just get out of the hair of the, of the early church. But, and you'll know this if you haven't read it before, in chapter 9, God has other plans, as he does with all of us who are haters, okay? And we get to deal with this wonderful conversion of this hater on Easter morning. Hundreds of people are going to hear really an amazing narrative, and this is the point of the story, that all of us, we're all haters by nature, and yet there isn't any heart that God can't reach. There isn't any person, no matter what scars that you have created for yourself or for others, there isn't any story, any narrative, any place you've been or things you've done that is beyond the reach of God's love. In fact, there's no way there's a thousand people sitting in this room if that isn't true. You know your story. I know mine. And there's no way, there's no way I'm here if God didn't come after haters. And there isn't a sin that you have committed. There isn't a sin out there that is beyond the scope of the magnitude of God's grace to cover it in repentance and faith. Do you believe that, church? We get to to look at that on Easter. That's going to be a a great study. But for now, let's just remember, Saul is the the hater. Look at the second person in this story in verses 4 through 8. It's Philip. Let's just call him the lover of God. Here's what the text tells us. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city or a city in Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Who who is this guy, Philip? He is not one of the disciples. This is one of those uh, Hellenistic Christians who were scattered after Stephen's persecution. Remember, he shows up in our text in chapter 6 as one of the deacons or one of the men raised up to meet the needs of the widows that were going neglected in the distribution of food. And that's where he shows up. First of all, that's this Philip because we're, we're told that all the disciples stayed in Jerusalem. So this has to be the only other conclusion. 
And the text just simply says it, but because of our distance in culture, we have to unpack it a little bit. It just simply says that he went to Samaria and preached the good news. To us, it means nothing. To the Hebrew hearers, it meant everything. There is a cosmic divide between Samaritans and the Hebrews. You know this. I hope you know this. Uh, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. The, the Samaritans considered themselves to be Jewish, but the Jews considered the Samaritans to, to be people who had turned away from the true faith. In fact, they considered them half-breeds. They had horrible derogatory things to say about the Samaritans. And there's so many narratives, so many stories of, of description uh, for us to know how that relationship went down. But listen to how one writer describes the, the, where this it came from. History records intense animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews that had lasted hundreds of years. In 721 BC, the Assyrians took the inhabitants of Israel, the northern kingdom, off to Assyria, where the Jews intermarried, key, intermarried with the Assyrians. In 587 BC, the people of the southern kingdom, Judah, were taken in, in, in captivity in Babylon. But in Babylon, there was no intermarriage. So when those Jews came back to their homes, uh, there were of unadulterated Jewish blood. Unlike the inhabitants of the northern kingdom, to the Jews, the Samaritans were a mongrel nation of half-breeds. Unfaithful, uncommitted, undeserving, unpure people. In other words, let's put a code to this. What was going on between the Jewish people and the Samaritans was the ultimate version of racism. They don't deserve it and they're different. That's the tension between this. And in that tension, watch what happens. Watch what happens. The Holy Spirit moves, okay, preparing the hearts of people as he always does. He gives Peter this, or, or Philip rather, a special ability to speak and perform miracles. And guess what God does? Revival breaks out. So much so that it says in the text that the whole city was rejoicing his message and his presence, okay? How does that happen? How, what, what, is some, what is special about Philip that he can just show up in the midst of all this racial brokenness and tension? How can he just show up and see such success in just declaring the good news? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. First of all, he was a Hellenistic Christian. Which simply means he was Greek by language and culture with Jewish religious traditions, okay? Which simply meant that the people tolerated but didn't accept, okay, him. And as a Christian, you can see even from chapter 6 when the widows, the Hellenistic widows were being neglected with a daily distribution of food. They were kind of neglected, kind of afterthought. So the, the, the Samaritans had a kinship with the Hellenistic Christians, and here's how it went. You're marginalized too. You're excluded too. If, if Peter came, he'd have to climb over all of those issues to try to communicate God's love. And they could make some accusations, couldn't they? Yeah, you, you talk a good game. You've separated yourself from us. But Philip talks and they go, man, he, he knows what we deal with. He knows what it's like to be marginalized. He knows what it's like to, to be an outsider. And so they had something in common, which is a, just a point. I suppose this could be a sermon for another time. God always picks the right man. Of all the people that he could send to this place in Samaria to preach the good news and not have them have to look through a filter of discrimination, he sends this guy who can sympathize. Perfect, perfect. 
another reason why Philip is so successful here in Samaria or in the city in Samaria is that he, his sermons are centered on Jesus, not the law and the temple. A Samaritan hears law and hears temple and says, I'm another outsider. I can't go in. You don't accept me. I can't get close to those things. So when he talks about no law, no temple, Jesus, man, right now we're lining up. We, we love the words that you're saying, okay? The Samaritans obviously were, uh, as well, were, were looking for a prophet like Moses because Moses said, Deuteronomy 18, he talked about it, that there's a prophet coming like me. He's different. He's special. And when Philip shows up, he tells them who it is. It's Jesus. The one you've waited for is here. So theologically and socially, everything that Philip says, they align with. And so there's all these, all these tripping points have been removed for him. But the obvious part of why he's being successful is that the text tells us the power of God was on it. And may I suggest the power of God revealed in the love of God, seen in his words and his demeanor towards these people. Now, if you're doing math, you should be collecting these wonderful words for your own experience with others, but I'll get to that in a second. The power of God was on Philip. God does amazing things with average people, and that's what Philip was. Just so you know, when we read narratives like this, we kind of, we make saints out of them and say, well, he must have been a special guy. I mean, God had the ability to sort out his giftedness and see that he had ex extra potential and power in him. I'm going to use the strongest. That's not what Philip is. He's a normal guy that God did extraordinary things with. But can I give you one other reason why he was successful? Because Philip wasn't afraid to take a step of faith. He was pushed out of where he wanted to be because of suffering, and yet it didn't make him shrink back. He got loud for Jesus. He talked about Christ. Now, that whole expression is scary to us. Stepping out in faith is so un-American because we step out with our bank books and our wisdom and timing. Here's what one writer, he asked this question. He said, how I, I often wonder how much of God's power for today we consign to the closed book of the past. Could it be that we have not because we ask not and that we see no miracles because we expect none? If you're dead set on the proposition that miracles don't happen in your life, I can guarantee you that you'd be right. But if you live your everyday life in the power of faith, expecting God to reach down in the most mundane of activities in the most modern of worlds, you may begin to see wonderful, wonderful things. That's confronting. To be honest with you, we have our daytimers and calendars and our ways and our systems and our programs and our money and blah, blah, blah. I don't need faith. Convicting, right? And that's the thing you can learn from Philip. We'll never see the power of God work in our life until we kind of step that way. Trusting that God can do stuff with us. That he wants to do things with us. That there's another excluded people out there, sinner, not saved by grace that God is going to reach out to through your mouth, through your words, through your life, through your love, through your affection. That's what God wants to do, okay? We could step out too. We could share the gospel with someone. And you know this because you all have people like this, like I do. There's no way God could save him. <laughs> that guy. Step out in faith with that person. No way. Yeah. Because that's what he does. He saves the unsavable. 
He reaches the unreachable. That's what Jesus does. And so we could share those words. We could agree to serve in some place that we're absolutely making excuses for. Like, I don't think I have what it takes. I don't think I have all those special things you need, so we don't. We don't do anything. We just sit. We consume. We could trust God to provide in some difficult times. Uh, let, let's put it in this vernacular. You understand what I mean? Dream big with God. You can't outdream him. You can't out-ask him. You cannot. He won't run out of resources. So you dream and you move your feet based on those, those words because we would say, and you'll say amen to this, our God is able. Is he not? You didn't say amen, but we can get back to that. It's interplay. All right. Let me give you the third guy in our story. Simon. Let's call him Simon the liar. If you want the analogy of the make-believer, this is this guy here. Let's look at it, verses 9 through 19. And there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he, things not to do, that he himself was somebody great. (laughs) And they paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they, had belie- but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That's, that's where we meet Simon. Uh, we, he is known as Simon the sorcerer. There are many types of these guys that show up in our scriptures. Some dabbled in the occult. Some were astrologers. Some were con artists. Some were magicians. All of them had one thing in common. They made their living doing that. Convincing people, what he says here in verse 9, saying of himself that he is great. If you can get people to think you're great, then people will pay for your greatness. You understand? And so that's what Simon was doing. He boasted that he was special. In fact, you can just picture this kind of at a carnival. Simon the Great is in town, right? That's who he is. He had a great following according to the text. And the conclusion from people was that the things he did were clearly from God because nobody can do those things. Special things. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, I told you, warning, heads up, special things don't mean they're from God. Because Jesus himself warned of those things, about people who point to themselves by doing great things. He just says that false prophets in Christ will rise up performing great signs and miracles, trying to lead away the elect. So just because great things happen with Simon doesn't mean that God's in it. Yet the people think it is, all right? And then Philip shows up. And people hear a different word. And they hear the word of salvation. They hear the name of Jesus. And they see miracles undenied. And and Philip never, never pointed to himself. Hopefully you're starting to see the differences between Simon's approach and Philip's approach. Philip pointed to Jesus, power of God in the lives of people. Simon pointed to himself. Text tells us that people heard this message and received it. It even tells us that Simon, the sorcerer, 
believed and was baptized. That's what it tells us. The apostles uh, hear about it at home, and they come out to Samaria to find out, check out what's going on. Peter and John do. And they obviously see evidences of real faith. And the text also tells us that they prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't come on them yet. So that should create for us, Christian, a question. What just happened? Because I'm convinced, I've been taught, at least that's what I thought, that when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit. They come at one moment in time. The Holy Spirit regenerates, removes sin, and you are in him and of him, okay? So here, here is the question, if you're asking it in, in the appropriate way. Is this the way it's supposed to work? Is receiving Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit two different experiences? Here's the quick answer if you like to take really short notes. No. Okay. Let, let me go on to explain. Here's the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1, said it this way. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise, Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. He says as well in Romans chapter 8. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So all throughout the New Testament, it is clear in the teaching of the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is giving, given to the person at the time that he believes. So that has to leave us to the conclusion that something unusual is happening here. An exception is happening here. If everywhere else, the apostle pointing to how this works says that you're regenerated by the Spirit, given the Spirit at conversion when you confess, what's happening here? Why the exception? In fact, the only other exceptions in all of Scripture of this believing and then being baptized with the Spirit happen in Acts and only two other times. And every time it has to do with new borders being crossed. Something special has taken place and God is making a statement at that moment with the giving of the Holy Spirit. Let me prove my point in this particular text. In this particular text with the, this gospel going to the Samaritans, God was saying something loud and proud and strong about the brokenness and the restoration of this relationship. Watch, watch what he's saying. In this one simple act, this was for the Samaritans it was for the Jews and it was for the church, for the Samaritans who had thought and been told their whole life, you don't cut it. You're different. You don't belong here. You're a half-breed. You don't have faith. If God was ever gonna put a stamp on the opposite statement that you belong, for him to bring two Hebrew leaders of the church down to Samaria to lay their hands on him and the Holy Spirit comes, you want the Samaritans to get the message that they are also included? Well, that would be the way to do it. How about the message that he sends to the Jewish brothers who have themselves put the Samaritans at a distance by saying you don't quite cut it? If you ever want them to be convinced that God has included a group of people that you have been racist towards, then for the apostles to come and lay their hands on them and receive the Holy Spirit said to those people, you were wrong. And for the church, and for the church, even though it's just, just a baby, it's barely even crawling, for the church to protect it from future racism and division, for it to declare clearly that destroy the barriers that exist with people with these man-made constructs, to say the gospel saves sinners, blind and dead people, that's what the gospel does. All who come to Christ can be saved. 
that's what this special moment was. This exceptional moment where all these tripping points for the Samaritans to come in would have been there if God didn't do it in this way. Does that make sense? A special moment, an exception to the rule. Let's get back to, uh, let's get back to Simon. So Simon witnesses this wonderful, unbelievable moment with the church. There are paralyzed people being healed. There are demon possessions being cured. There's all sorts of things happening. And Simon thought to himself, I could use me some of that. That would sell. People love that. People love power. Where can I get me some of that? And so he offers a suggestion to Peter and John. Now tell me, tell me how I can do what you just did. I'll pay you for it. And here's the conclusion. Look at verses 20 through 24. This is Peter's response. He said in verse 20, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that, that you are in a gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Peter condemns his uh, request and calls it what it was, sin and wickedness. Now stop for a second. Think of how absurd this is. The idea that someone would want to use God's power for the wrong reasons. It's crazy, right? Who could ever do that? Us. I mean, I don't want to disclose too much, but a lot of leaders, a lot of preachers doing it for their fame, their glory, their influence, their power. Want to be liked. Want people to like them. We do stuff. Serving, you know, I want to serve, and if I serve, then I can climb the ladder of leadership because leadership is cool, and, you know, that's important, and I want to use this thing called service to climb the ladder of responsibility. We use our gifts for self-promotion or we seek to be godly so others would simply call us godly. We want somebody to recognize me. Who would possibly use the gift of God for something like that? You would too. So let me leave you with a couple of so what's. You should know this by now. We say this enough. God will use the bad stuff for great stuff. Always has and always will. Persecution in this case, to extend his kingdom, to grow his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Let's just admit it. It's hard for us to make sense out of the bad sometimes, isn't it? But there is a rule, and it needs to ring in our ears all the time. God wastes nothing. He wastes nothing, and he uses everything. We say it this way, for our good and his glory, don't we? He uses everything. And in this case, in this particular story, persecution, the actual death in a horrific way of a man named Stephen who was full of grace and faith and love, that guy had to die. And God said, mm, I can use that. I mean, sort of, I was talking to the guys before I came out last hour, and it's sort of like this hard-to-perceive, hard-to-recognize ripple that happens to every narrative in our life. 
God isn't just doing one thing. He's not just doing a thing with you. He's doing a thing with you that affects someone how one's perceiving you or how you respond to that particular thing. And those relationships outside of that, the exponential growth of the ripple of what God is doing in every particular narrative you all have is amazing. It blows your mind to consider it. And in this case, God is always doing great things. And because sin is in the world and sin is in us, guess what he uses to move? The bad stuff. And if you don't wrap your arms around the bad stuff as a way that God transforms your life, you're going to miss most of it. You're going to complain against most of it. But God uses those things. Just, just remember, when those hard times come, God is up to something. You might not know what. You might not know how it ends. You might not be alive when it does. It doesn't matter. Because our God is good all the time, right? Right? He's up to something. So don't wallow in the pain of it. Look for your opportunity, and this is what we say, to glorify God. So in our circumstances, if it's for our good and for his glory, then the only thing we should be doing in the difficult things is where can I reflect the glory of God in my pain, in my suffering? Where can I do that? That's clearly a narrative we can learn from this story. But let me give you something else that I think that sticks out to me. And you can see it clearly in the story of Simon. A profession of faith is not the same thing as a possession of faith. Did you get that? What you say with your mouth is not the same thing as what you believe in your heart. Now, was Simon really saved? I guess that's a good question to ask. Because the text tells us he believed and was baptized. So does that make him a believer? I think you ought to slow down before you answer. Because here's what the text tells us. James even says it, that demons believe. Even demons believe. So belief isn't necessarily the qualifying issue. Here's what I think stands out to me. When he's confronted with his carnal, wrong motive, I'll pay for the power of God so that I can extend my influence and my wealth. Peter confronts him and calls him a man of iniquity and he says, you need to repent. What does Simon do with that statement? Mm, you pray for me. I got a better idea. I don't want bad things to happen to me. So Peter, since you're the one who said it, why don't you just pray for me? I'm gonna be good right here. Simon didn't believe. So, so here's some cautions in, in your own mind. I mean, if someone wrote that, wrote that script about you, you'd probably go to bed and rest well, believed and was baptized. But I think we should ask some questions of ourselves or make some statements at least to our own heart. You and I can assent to the truth without ever surrendering to the truth we assent to. You can say, I believe it to be true, but submitting your life to its implications is a whole other matter, Right? We're talking about um, the difference between knowing facts about Jesus without really trusting him. You can be theologically sound and, and yet not have committed yourself to those theological truths. That's the truth. You can even have an experience and still not be saved. This is, this is probably more American than anybody. But we walked an aisle. We raised our hand. I remember when. I had that moment. Like I felt really bad. I cried a lot. Listen, trusting Christ isn't a one-night stand. 
It's a life change. Not Now, just so you know, not overnight, but it's a life change. Transformation over time. That's what it is. And just a reminder, being baptized doesn't save you either. There is no work that settles the issue of sin between you and God. The only work can be done is Jesus for you. So baptism doesn't add a work that satisfies God for your rebellion. It's simply an obedient way to tell the world that you belong to him. It doesn't save anybody. So I think we should ask that question. So one last thing. We got three stories here, three people here. Which one are you? Are you a hater? I mean, that's hard to say, right? So, it's so hard to call yourself that because nobody wants to perceive themselves that gory. But you know what I mean by hater. You're at war with God. I mean, God has said so many things. He says there's one way to heaven, one way. It's Jesus Christ, the narrow road. He said it's, that's it. And you're looking for every other way around the narrow way. You're warring with God's way. He said about you that you can't do any good. In fact, what you do in your best activity is filthy rags compared to my holy standard. You can't get it. And you're going, wait a minute, that's a little bit too harsh because I've done this. And you've got your list of things you've done that think earn you credit with God. You're at war with him. Let me me just tell you, please come back in the next couple weeks. Come back on Easter. Because I get to tell you what God does with hearts like that. Saul doesn't stay a hater. Saul is wonderfully transformed. And you know what did it? You don't move his heart from hatred to love? That's the answer. Jesus. Are you like Simon? (laughs) Are you a pretender? Have you been involved with the things of God for all the wrong reasons? You go to church, you serve, you baptize, you do good things, right? For the wrong reasons? You go to show up here because it's what you're supposed to do? Or is this an expression of your affections for the love of God that he's shown you? One last, I think, comparison would be Philip. I look around and I see very familiar faces and I could say there's a lot of Philips in this room. A lot of people who are passionate. So can I just throw a dare on you? If Philip is described in our first experience with him as a guy who jumps out of the plane in radical ways with God, like I'm going, I'm, I'm doing, I'm gonna take steps, scary steps in faith. And I, can I dare you to take scary steps in faith? I suppose that sounds a little harsh, but challenge you, encourage you. What do you wanna hear? to maybe look at your difficult life, your trials, your suffering in a different way. Can I encourage you um, to find the people, there's no way God could save them, and open your mouth. Could you be like Philip and just simply declare the glory and the goodness of God to all you encounter? Stepping out of faith, knowing that's how and why he does what he does. God used Philip to change this city. And I think God will use you too. I have no idea how. I, know, I have no idea how, but I know if we step out trusting him, his power will fill us and he will do the good work. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray for your strength in our life. So many things to consider in this, in this narrative today. But God, help us as um, your people to live with the joy, the acceptance, the inclusion, the love, the faith, the power that's demonstrated in our brother Philip. For those who might be here who are still holding out on you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would get them. Save them, Father, I pray in Christ's name, amen.